We are in Psalm 15. So let's take our Bible and turn there. And then next week we'll do Psalm 16. And that will conclude our series for Psalms in the summer. Okay? This week will be 15. Next week will be 16. Now I decided to go to 16 because this is a psalm that is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he relates it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I thought that would be a great place to stop. So that will be next week. I forget what date that is. 23rd. And then on the 30th we'll start a new series. And I think I'm going to go through Galatians. Until the end of the year. And then, then we'll see what we can do from that point. So let's go to Psalm 15. And when you get there. I want you to notice two things. First of all I want you to notice how short it is. It's only five verses. Which makes it one of the shortest psalms. Uh, in the book of 150 Psalms. And then the second thing, I want you to notice the format. Verse 1 is a question. Verses 2 through 5 answer that question. And so that's how it's divided, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the question first, and then we're going to look at the answer to the question, which is very interesting. Uh, as we were riding down the road, Lynn said, when I read this, uh, it's sort of like a repeat of the Ten Commandments, and there are certain characteristics that fit in with that, and you'll see how all this works out. So let's look at the question. It says, verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, the question itself consists of only three words. Who will abide? Who will dwell? Now, uh, notice the two who's there talking about a certain kind of person okay what kind of person who is the individual who will abide or who will dwell now that's a parallelism the word abide and the word dwell mean exactly the same thing line one and line two same question just a repeat of that question okay and the word dwell usually means to live in to dwell in a home for a long period of time well, the question is, who will dwell in God's tabernacle? Do you see that? Your tabernacle, your holy hill, which is uh, Mount Zion. Well, that's a very unusual question. Who will dwell in God's tabernacle? No one dwells in God's tabernacle except whom? God. The tabernacle and also the temple was the house of God. That's where God dwelt. People don't dwell there. God dwells there. The high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and on the Day of Atonement. So, when David asked this question, who will abide in the tabernacle, who will dwell on your holy hill, uh, he must be using the word dwell and abide in a different sense. And I think we get a hint of how this is used. If you look over at uh, Psalm 24, look over at Psalm 24 just for a moment. Now, when you look at Psalm 24, uh, you get a sort of the same type of feeling. It's a very famous psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms because when I was in the sixth, fourth grade, I guess it was, in public school, we used to read the Bible every day. You remember that thing? Some of you remember that. And the teacher would read usually out of the psalms. And this is a psalm that my teacher read often. And I, uh, as a fourth grader, was very impacted by this particular psalm. It says, The earth is the Lord and all of its fullness. Old King James says, In the fullness thereof. Remember that? Yeah. The word and those who dwell therein. 
for he has founded it upon the seas, he's established upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Now there's that word hill there. Who may stand in his holy place? And then he answers the question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Who can do that? Well, here it is. Look at this. This is Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. God's people are the ones that can do this. The generation of those who what? <coughs> seek him who seek his face. So when you go back to Psalm 15 and he says who can dwell or who can abide in God's holy place, he's talking about <coughs> probably the answer is the children of God. People act a certain way. And he's not talking about living in the tabernacle, but people who seek God's face. People who seek God's blessing. Who's the person that will receive God's blessing? Uh, if you look back, for example, at uh, Psalm 14, uh, and look at verse 6. And it's talking about poor people who are godly people, and he says, you shame the counsel of the poor. You, you put down God's people who happen to be poor. But look at what the end of verse 6 says. But the Lord is his what? Refuge. So I think that Psalm, 16 pick, uh, Psalm 15 picks up on that. And he's saying this. Who is the Lord's refuge? Who can go to the Lord for protection? Who can go to the Lord for provision? When everyone is turning away from them. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so I think that that's what the gist of the question is. Who's the person that seeks the Lord, who's the person who will have the Lord's blessing, who's the person uh, in whom the Lord is their refuge, who is that person? Uh, is there a certain kind of person that the Lord responds to? And the answer is yes. Uh, Jesus cleansed out the temple. Remember that? The money changer. Uh, they weren't the people that the Lord blessed. And he was displeased with them. But there are people that the Lord blesses, and there are people who can run to the Lord, and he will receive them. So let's find out who they are. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. By the way, that question is addressed to the Lord, right? Uh, but David doesn't expect to hear an answer from the Lord. He says, Lord, who is it that can dwell in your house? Uh, he doesn't expect the Lord to answer. In fact, in verses 2 through 5, David will answer himself. Which means question, the question in verse 1 is what we call a rhetorical question. He doesn't expect an answer from the Lord. He already knows the answer, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to give it to us. So David's going to give us the answer. Now let's look at the answer. Okay? And this answer in verse 2 is sort of a general answer. He's going to give us general standards for the person uh, who can seek the Lord. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Now, that's a general description of the person who can find refuge in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice the word he there. Do you see that? You see the word he in verse 2. You see the word he at the beginning of verse 3. You see the word he at the end of verse 3. Nor does he take up a reproach. You see that? Middle of verse 4. But he, look at the end of verse 4. He who swears, verse 5. He who does not 
Look at the end of verse 5. He who does these things. You see those words, he? The word he is used explicitly that many times and altogether explicitly and implicitly 11 times. So he's going to give us 11 characteristics of a person who can find their refuge in the Lord. Okay? So the word he is going to describe that person. By the way, there are 11 verbs here that describe what God expects from those who can find safety in him. So in verse 2, we have this general description. And it sort of describes the person's lifestyle. Who, he who walks uprightly, he who works righteousness, and he who speaks the truth in his heart. Now let's look at the first one. He who walks upright, uprightly. That describes a person's lifestyle. That means they live according to God's standards. That's what the word means. They live according to God's standards. They live uprightly. Uh, they do what's right. Their decisions are right decisions. Now he uses the word walks uprightly. Uh, that's perpendicular. That's different than a beast. A beast carries his own version on his back. That's the way he's created. We are created to walk straight, perpendicular. We are not created to carry weight. Our spines are not created like that. Now in Africa, you do see some people who carry things on their head. Very interesting. Notice how they have to walk. They walk uprightly. They just don't have their head like this. See? So in order, you have to walk the right way. See? And the person who can seek God as their, as their refuge has to walk the right way. We used to say, walk the straight and narrow. Remember that? That's, you've heard that. He's a straight arrow. Yeah, straight shooter, straight arrow. So what you see is you, that's, that's what's being described here. Uh, how you live. Now, also, look at the next one. And works righteousness in verse 2. He works righteousness. We go from walking to working. He does what is right toward others. This deals with his relationship to others. Uh, he says he's going to do a job for you, and he does the job for you. That's what it's describing here. Okay, Right toward others, being a responsible person. And then finally, in verse 2, speaks the truth in his heart. So you go from walk to work to words. See that? Now, he speaks the truth where? In his heart. What did it say back in... Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool has said what? In his heart. What does he say in his heart? That's not the truth. That's not the truth. The person who seeks refuge in God speaks the truth in his heart and he believes there is a God. That's how you can tell these psalms are related to each other. You will see these repetition of words and phrases uh, this is very important in studying literature, especially the scripture. So our words are to match reality. We are to speak truth in our heart. Here's an atheist. He says there's no God. His words really don't match reality. There is a God. So we, our words, to match reality. 
So that's the general standard for the person who can dwell in God's presence. Now look at verse 3. We're going to go from the general to the specifics. Okay? So if you were sitting there and David said verse 2, you said, well, what does that mean, David? Can you give me an example? And he says, yeah, I can give you an example. And I want you to notice verse 3 is all negative. He's going to give us negative examples. Just like the Ten Commandments are negative for the most part, aren't they? Thou shalt not steal. You know. Well, he's going to give us some negative examples. And then we'll know what we're supposed to do positively. Look at verse 3. Number one, he who does not backbite with his tongue. Uh, sometimes your tongue can bite better than your teeth. Now, I've had three sons who used to fight when they were little, and occasionally they would bite each other. <coughs> they usually didn't bite on someone's back. They couldn't get those teeth around them, massive back. They'd get around the arm, you know, wherever that mouth could open up just enough to grab something. So here is a bite that's worse than your teeth bite. It's a tongue bite. Now, I'm going to contend that he who does not bite, backbite with his tongue is equivalent to verse 2, he who walks uprightly. Now when you look at that, it doesn't look like they're related at all. He who walks uprightly, he who does not backbite with his tongue. Okay? Because walking and tongue don't seem to match. It seems like you're dealing with, one deals with your feet, one deals with your, your mouth. But in reality, they do, because the word backbite comes from a Hebrew root word, which means foot. And it also is related to the word spying, like James Bond, the spy, spying. And it's describing a person who sneaks around and spies on people behind their back and then talks about them, gossips about them slanders the individual. So, this is an example. So, who is the person that can find God as his refuge? Who's the person that God's countenance will shine upon? Who's the person that God will provide for? Who will protect? Well, it's the person that doesn't backbite. Doesn't defame another person's character. So, you could make it a positive person who tells truth about people and doesn't backbite. Okay. Now let's look at the next thing. You still with me? In verse 3. Nor does evil to his neighbor. Nor does evil to his neighbor. That means he, uh, it's another negative. The word evil here means calamity. Doesn't, doesn't cause trouble for his neighbor. Okay. Now, first of all, it deals with relationships, doesn't it? It deals with your neighbor. And this is talking about people in your community. In this case, it would have been the Jewish community, the Jews. Uh, and their neighbors would have been other Jews. Doesn't cause calamity toward his brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking. Uh, I believe that's related to, verse 2, that second sentence, the works of righteousness. The works of righteousness. And does no evil to his neighbor because the opposite of doing evil is righteousness. 
doesn't work evil toward his neighbor, but he does righteousness toward his neighbor. Does that make sense? Still with me? Now notice it doesn't have the word he there, but he's implied, isn't it? Nor does he do evil to his neighbor. See, that's why I said that he is always implied here. Now let's look at the next thing. Nor does he take up reproach. Now this is the person that God will bless. The person does not, does, does not take up reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. <coughs> now this is a very difficult uh, construction of this verse. And it could have a couple of different meanings, but I'm going to give you the meaning that I think is, is the best as I've tried to work it out. Uh, it describes the person who will stand in God's presence is the person who does not accept an accusation against his neighbor from some vile person. In other words, when it comes to take sides, the person that God blesses takes sides with his brother, takes sides with his neighbor. He doesn't take sides with an evil or a vile or a corrupt person who happens to be spreading lies. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Blessed is the man that walketh not, yeah. nor standeth with those sinners, nor sits in the seat of the score. He doesn't side with the evil people. He sides with the righteous people. Now there are a lot of people that are Christians, and let me tell you something, they don't exhibit these things. They're gossiping and backbiting and sneaking around and they are uh, doing evil, causing problems. They, they enjoy doing that. They get word from some bad source and they use it against brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, will that person stand in the presence of God? Doesn't matter what they say, they're not going to stand in the presence of God. <clears throat> David said that was true for Israel. It's one thing to be Israel. But not all of Israel is Israel. Some are only Israel by the flesh. Is it good enough to say, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew? Still had to trust the Lord, didn't you? These were probably Jews in Psalm 14 who said in their heart there wasn't a God. Most likely. So, it's one thing to have a profession of faith. It's another thing to possess faith in Christ. So, we don't receive words from evil people about our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't accept the reproach. You see, in our legal system, it's a crime to rob someone. But it's also a crime to receive stolen goods. If you receive the rumors, the lies about someone else, it's the same as if you said those things. So, you're guilty, and that's not the kind of person that God blesses. Now, look in the middle of verse 4. We go on. But, oh, now we have this contrast. Who's the person that God blesses? But he who honors those who fear the Lord. That's the person that God blesses. Not the one who honors the reviler. There are a lot of us that will We'll get in with the political party or get in with politicians or get in with somebody in the community. They're godless people and we listen to that nonsense and we pay them honor. 
and then we don't pay honor to the people to whom honor is due. And we need to make sure that we honor those to whom honor is due. And who is, to whom is honor due? Those who what? Fear the Lord. Doesn't matter how much money they have. Doesn't matter the social status. I'm talking about those who fear the Lord. And then look what he says at the end of verse 4. Who else does God bless? He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Uh, God will protect and take care of, provide for the person who says, I'll do something and does it even if it costs him. Even at the end, he says, well, I said I would do this job for X number of dollars. It's not going to cost me more, but guess what? I said I would do it. My word's my bond. I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to take the loss. That's the person that God blesses. There have been times, I'm sure everyone in this room, but just with me, it's been, I promised to get some article to somebody on time. And guess what? In order for me to do that, and I'm not done, and it's 12 o'clock at night, and it's due, and I said I'd have it in this day, or the next day, I have a choice. I can go to sleep and work on the next day until I get it done, or I can stay up all night until I get it done. So guess what I decide to do? Stay up all night and get it done, even though it's cost me something. It's to my hurt. I wish my students did that. <laughs> so I didn't have time. What do you mean you didn't have time? I said, well, what time did you go to bed? Well, 11.30. Time did you get up? 8.30. Oh my, you had nine extra hours. <laughs> hey, if you've been to college, you've, you've had all-nighters. Uh, kids today don't believe in all-nighters. A lot of kids, not all kids. So anyway, why am I saying that? So anyway, <laughs> I guess school's getting ready to get started, and I'm already frustrated. <laughs> Uh, by the way, someone said, if I come to that kingdom class, do I have to do a term paper? And the answer is no. <laughs> now, anyway, look at verse 5. Next qualification. This is a good one. The question is, who will God provide for? Who will God protect? Who are those that can run to God for refuge and be in His presence? To whom will God's face bless, shine upon, countenance shine upon? Look at verse 5. He who does not put out his money at usury. He who does not lend money and charge interest. Now, what in the world is he talking about? <clears throat> well, he's talking about he who does not put out his money at usury. That's what he's talking about. <clears throat> now, Israel... Uh, Israel, uh, Jews were allowed to lend money. The land of Israel was not a corporate land like ours is. It's not talking about corporate lending. It's not talking about going to a bank and getting a mortgage on your house, uh, borrowing money for that. It's not talking about that. In this situation, what he's talking about, first of all, was just people worked the land. They were peasants for the most part. There was a very small percentage of people who were High had high status, probably less than 10%. 90% of the people were, were peasants. 
And when you borrowed money, you borrowed money because you needed to survive. It meant your next meal, and, you know, just living. And God told the Jews, when you see a brother or a sister in need, help them out. And so one of the ways that they could help them out was that they could loan them money. Okay? But it was for need, not for want. It was for absolute need. Usually it took place when a famine hit. Or there was a hailstorm and a crop was destroyed. Or it, you know, the, it was in, the crops were infested and the person couldn't live. And somebody would lend them the money. He says, in that situation, you lend them the money, but you do not charge interest. Okay? Now, the Old Testament is very clear on this in just about every book. Moses. So I want to just show you an example or two of this. I think this will clarify a lot for uh, the way the Jews were expected to handle their money. I want you to go over to Exodus. Let's see if I've got these verses down right. I don't. We'll... we'll figure it out. Exodus 22. Exodus 22. And when you get there, Look at verse 25. Exodus 22 and verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Now that's, that's a pretty clear statement. Now notice that the person you're lending to is a person who's in need. It's described as a poor person who somehow got into a bind, not through any fault of their own. And you are going to lend them the money, but you're not going to be like a money lender. Now, there were people that were called money lenders. The nations lent money. Surrounding nations lent money and charged interest. And by doing that, they were able to lord it over people. Because if Don owes me money, I've got something over his head. And if he can't pay it back, I charge him interest. Now i really got something over I'm lording it over him. Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, at the first at the last Passover meal, he said, don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over others. I think it's a, one of these kinds of statements that he was thinking about. So, notice that the gift or the loan is to my people. It's to a person of faith. It's somebody you know. It's the poor among you. Notice it's among you. It's not a loan to somebody you never heard of. And you shall not charge him interest. And now go over to Leviticus. Exodus Leviticus. And look at Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. And look at verse 35 when you get there. Leviticus 25 and verse 35. And here's what it says. If one of your brethren becomes poor, notice the brethren, the body of the faith, becomes poor, and falls into poverty among you, then you 
shall help him. Like a stranger, a sojourner, that he may live within you. Just like a person who uh, came into Israel as an alien and you helped them as well. That's what he's describing. Go to verse 36. Take no usury or interest from him. Now this is an interesting combination here. But fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury nor lend him your food at a profit. Now notice that. You're not the profit over someone else's hardships. Now in this world, you take advantage of people who are facing hardship. In fact, the people that you think probably can't pay you back, you'll charge them more interest. Isn't that right? But in Israel, that wasn't the case. In Israel, the interest or the loan was made to people who were needy. It was based on need, based on someone you know, somebody in the faith. When talking about lending to people that were to the other nations, to the Gentile nations, and it said you don't charge interest, but fear the Lord. Why do you think you threw that in? Fear the Lord. Sounds sort of scary, there, doesn't it? that your brother may live with you. Ah, because if you don't do this, he won't be able to live, and guess what? You better feel the Lord, because you're going to have to stand before him and give him an account. Yeah, I think that's what he's saying. Now let's look over at Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Go ahead and go to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. And when you get there, look at verse 19. Verse 19. You shall not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or on anything. In other words, you don't say, well, I'll give you a loaf of bread, but tomorrow you have to give me back too. Okay? None of that. <clears throat> look at that. Or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest. But to your brother, you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may what? Bless you in all to which you have set your hand in the land which you're entering to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And it would be a sin to you. So, you say, well, you need some money. He says, yes. And I lend it. So when you pay me back, so I'll pay you back next week. And you have to keep your word as well. This was a relationship that was built on trust. But God's people did not charge God's people interest. When there was a need. When there was a need. So if you have a need, we're not talking, well, I need to get new tires. Well, what do you mean you need to get new tires? You mean you want to go out and get new Michelin tires? You mean your tires only have another 7,000 miles on them? We're talking about people who needed help, food, money, whatever, because it was a life and death issue. Okay? Destitution. Beyond their control. Let me show you an example of this. Okay? 
look over at Nehemiah. Okay, Nehemiah. So just keep on moving and you'll find, you'll eventually find Nehemiah. If you go to Esther and Job and all that and Psalms, you've gone too far. So before Psalm, find Nehemiah. And look at chapter 5. Chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now this is interesting. And we'll just read through it. I don't think we need to make too much of a comment because I think it speaks for itself. Nehemiah 5 verse 1. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on the land and on the vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves because of all that debt they got. And some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. We don't have the money to get them back. For the other men have our lands and our vineyards. And Nehemiah says, I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked them. Notice, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. That's why they were in, pro they were in trouble. They're taking people's lands and all this. You're exacting usury from your brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we've redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nation. Now indeed, will you sell your brethren? In other words, he's saying, when we were in Egypt, we were slaves, they owned us. They wandered over us. God redeemed us. Because he redeemed us, he said, I never want you to be a slave to another human through interest or any other reason. And you're selling your own brother? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were solace. They found nothing to say. And then I said, what you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the what? Fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? That word reproach again. Also with my brethren and my servants. And I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands. Give them back their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. Also, hundreds of the money and the grain and the new wine and the oil that you've charged them. A hundred. It was probably a 1% interest that you charged them. So they said, we will restore it. And we will require nothing of them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests, and I required an oath of them, from them, that they would do according to the promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment, and I said, May God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. Then the people did according to that's very interesting teaching, isn't it? Uh, so, 
the rule of thumb, I believe, is you don't take advantage of helpless people. And you don't cause them to be worse off after you've supposedly helped them than before you helped them by charging them interest. You say, well, what if they can't pay it back? Take the law. Or don't loan it to them in the beginning. You see, that's what those other verses said, that we will keep our words even if it hurts us. I'll loan you the money, you pay it back. If you don't keep your word and pay it back, I'm willing to take the loss. I loan the money without interest. So, we see a lot here. And you say, well, then I'm out. Well, no, you're not out. Because, see, the psalm says, Who will the Lord bless and protect and give provision to and be a refuge for? The person who takes the hit? You're not out. In fact, he's going to bless you more than, than before. Because you obeyed him. See, that's the remarkable thing. We always leave God out of this. And all we have to do is trust God. We're to show mercy. We're not to be mercenary. Okay? And when you're loaning money to somebody who's a destitute, and then you extract interest, that's mercenary. That's gaining from their hurt. Instead, we're to be merciful. Does that make sense? So we're not to lord it over people like the Gentiles. Well, let's go back to the psalm. Only five verses. Boy, they're packed, aren't they? And look at the middle of verse 5. Not only the person does not give his money to usury, look in the middle of verse 5, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He doesn't hinder justice. Uh, he doesn't show partiality because some person has money to bribe him. Now what does this tell us about the people that he's talking about here? It tells us that they are in positions of authority to take bribes. Uh, that means the people that he's probably describing in these verses are people who have money to lend, they're in positions to power to judge whether this person goes to jail or that person doesn't, or what happens to that property line or that, and they're in positions of power, and the people who bribe them have the money to bribe them. And he says, you're not to show partiality to people just because they have money or status, you're to do justice. You're not, if you wouldn't put it into a principle, it's don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your power. And then he summarizes it all with these words. He who does these things shall never be moved. He'll stand firm. He'll be like that tree in Psalm 1 planted by the waters that shall not be moved. You won't fall. You won't be toppled. You say, oh, if I do that, I'll lose it up. No, you won't be knocked down. You're on more solid ground than you realize when you do so in a sense, what we have here, and notice that, he who does these things shall not be moved. If you go just up to the next psalm, Psalm 16, look at verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I shall what? Not be moved. Because you see, if you do these things, that's when God is your refuge and you won't be moved. You'll still be standing at the end because you've kept these commandments that the Lord that's given. So, like Psalm 1 and like Psalm 24, these psalms describe the person whom God blesses. 
the person upon whom God's countenance shines. And uh, we all need to take this to heart. Hopefully we've learned something. Next week we'll go to Psalm 16. That will finish our series in Psalm Father, we thank you for this passage. <clears throat> Full, meaningful, convicting. Help us to examine our lives in light of our relationship with you. Help us to realize that we can trust you no matter what. If, uh, if it's money, if it's land, if it's, it doesn't matter. Uh, we came into this world with nothing. We will leave with nothing. Uh, you own all of it in between time in our life. And you can give us whatever you want. We just trust you. We know that indeed you will be blessed by you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.